Here's a question for observers of politics at the Kansas Capitol. Who are the current longest serving members of the House and Senate? Well, I'll end the suspense for you and tell you. In the House, it's Representative Barbara Ballard, a Lawrence Democrat. She's been a state representative since 1993. And in the Kansas Senate, the most veteran among them is Senator David Haley, also a Democrat. He's from Kansas City, Kansas, and he's been in the legislature since 1994. They joined the Kansas Reflector today to talk about their lives in state house politics. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for being here, taking time out of your day. Representative Ballard, you were initially elected to the House in 1992, taking office in 93. And for reference, also in 1993, Beanie Babies went on sale. The United States and Russia signed the START II ICBM Weapons Treaty. Nelson Mandela won the Nobel Peace Prize, and Bill Clinton was president. Mm -hmm. So think back to that time, and why did you decide to run for the legislature? (laughs) Well, actually, when you put it... But no, I was in good company. Mandela was <laughs> doing Indeed. was what uh, out of prison, right? Coming into yeah. his own, and Bill Clinton was president, and that was a really happy time. I can remember my mother was just beside herself. She just thought it was absolutely fabulous that he was elected. So, um, why did I decide to run? Well, you know, I was on the school board in Lawrence, Kansas, uh, for uh, eight years. And uh, I was in my eighth year, and um, someone asked me, was I really going to resign? And I said, well, yeah, I said eight years, you know, I would be. And uh, Jessie Branson was serving in the 44th District, and uh, she had announced her retirement. And um, I guess it was a couple of weeks later, she just asked, would I be interested? And I said, nope. And that's like how we left it. And then she came back and she says, do you know there's, they've never really elected African-American woman to the house? And I said, no, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And um, so she kept talking. So finally I said, well, I guess I, guess I will run. Um, and as it turned out, Ruby Gilbert was in the house, and she was from Wichita, and Ruby Gilbert had taken Leo Cripps, uh, I, uh, I, I, th- I hope I have the right name, uh, but also Representative Cripps. Um, he had resigned, and she took that session. So she came in as an incumbent, and so we were both running, and um, I guess the rest is history, really, because, you know, I, I ran, and and um, was very happy to, to, to do my part. Have you ever had any close calls in those elections since then? Um, no, but, you know, I'm trying to think. I was looking at it. In, in 1990, I guess I could go back a little bit when I, I think about that, though. Um, I did run, and I lost that election to Sandy Prager. And it was a very close election. Hmm. And um, my mother um, had cancer, and I, you know, it's it really funny because I left in, in September, and I spent a lot of time with her, and then I came back and kind of finished up. So it's sort of like I knew kind of like why I lost, lost that election and everything else. And then um, I came back because she took... Um, 
that you know, when I think about it, it's been a while ago. I had to kind of mm-hmm. put the figures together. So, um, so then when I ran it the second time. You know, it was like, okay, uh, I won it. And um, I knew how well I had done before and what areas and everything else. So um, the rest, I just am still here. All right. Senator Haley, you were elected to the House in 1994. That's correct? Yes, I won in the primary. In the Served August there primary. in the House from 95 to 2000 and 2001. You moved to the Kansas Senate, also for reference, in 94. Steven Spielberg's Holocaust drama, Schindler's List. Okay. Won seven Oscars. Former President Richard Nixon died. Amazon was founded by Jeff Bezos. Mm, and the U.S. Stop. troops invaded Haiti. Yeah. I'd forgotten that. Yeah. Uh, so why did you seek elective office back in the day? Well, first, I think this is a great perspective. Thank you for going through this, sitting down with Barbara Ballard, who is a, a legend within the Kansas legislature and herself and myself. I, I really appreciate the perspective. I um, ran and had run several times before. So coming out of law school, I'd been the uh, class president uh, law school. I always wanted to be in public service. My dad, uh, George Haley, um, was the first black elected state senator in Kansas, getting elected in 64 as a Republican, uh, representing Wyandotte County. Um, And so public service or the thought of being elected to office had always been something I'd picked up from that. I admired Maybe a dinner table conversation. It was. And what were you doing to address uh, societal ills? I saw him busy. My mother was a um, a high school teacher, Sumner High School, the infamous Sumner High School. And so between the two, I always saw being involved in um, issues and, and public service and getting up and going to forums and what have you. I grew up like that. And my, myself and my sister, Anne, who's also an attorney, um, um, have made that a, 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 a thing. She's in Los Angeles now at the city attorney's office. We always wanted to be involved in community and whether that's political or social. Mm-hmm. So, service. Um, and service. So, uh, when I came back um, to Kansas City after living in, in D.C. and uh, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, came out of Morehouse College, uh, which is George Haley's alma mater uh, as well, coming back um, f- after Howard Law School to in D.C. to Kansas, it was kind of natural. I looked at it. So I was Republican at the time. Oh, okay. And I wasn't aware and, of that. Yeah. And I was when the Republican Party was kind of respectable still. I mean, it was a party of Bob Dole, with, for whom I worked when I was in law school. I was um, at the U.S. Capitol. I worked for Senator Dole, respected him, and still respect him tremendously, despite the fact that he, um, toward the end of life, just took everything with an R behind it, regardless of the values behind it. But he used to really be a, a, a great leader. I came out of that era. Again, my father was Republican. Um, and the, the party used to be... You know, I won't get into that right now. But so when I came back, we know what has happened to the Republican Party in this country. I saw the harbinger of things to come after having run twice as a Republican in Wyandotte County um, and losing in a district that was primarily Democratic, um, but still raising the values that I switched over and, and became as a Democrat, the issues that I supported were largely progressive. I've always been pro-choice as a Democrat and as a, as a Republican. Um, I've always supported you know, access and inclusion, 
criminal justice reform as a Republican and as a Democrat. So the label change was really all that I did. And in 94, I ran um, um, as a Democrat. Actually, I ran in 92 for the Senate seat, which had been uh, redrawn the first time as a Democrat in a three-way primary with uh, against um, uh, Representative Sherman Jones, who was running for the Senate, and a third, uh, a third party person whom I forgot. And um, Representative then Senator Jones bested me by like 150 votes. And in my first run as a Democrat, that was during the time Clinton was running as well um, for, for president. Uh, Governor Clinton was running. And that was the best thing that could have happened for me because uh, Senator um, Sherman Jones became, in his own way, a guide for what or who I could be by way of representation in the district where I was. Two years later, ran in 94 in a three-way primary for the House um, and I ran, and also in another district, um, Broderick Henderson ran, um, and another district, Doug Spangler ran. So we had three new state reps who won against incumbents in our primary. My incumbent immediately resigned. The pension here is very good, and I mean, the capers was such that he, uh, Representative Watson, Bob Watson, said, look, I'm not going to wait around to January. I'm resigning now, as I probably would do, too, if I were to be, you know, it makes better sense. And so I was appointed uh, in September ahead of the others that were there. So that's how the 94 comes in, even though the full term did not begin until 95. Good. Thanks for clarifying that. I wouldn't. It's hard to discern some of those uh, start-stop dates when you go way back so far. So when I decided to track down the longest-serving legislator in terms of the current 125-member House and the 40-member Senate, I was struck by the fact that in a legislature that is exceptionally white uh, in Kansas, the longest-serving members are a black woman and a black man. Can can you guys address that, Barbara? Can you talk about? Uh, the role that you may feel you play in the legislature and what it means. Uh, uh, I don't know if you necessarily refer to it as representing, but um, you just talk about. Hmm. <laughs> well, I, when you when when you and I talked earlier uh, about this, I, I was surprised when you said, "Well, there was you and uh, Senator Haley Haley were there." I you know I have to tell you in all actuality, I have never given it much thought whatsoever. And I think because in many ways I would have to really refer back to my father. My father was saying, you know, you should work hard on things that you control or that you had something to do with. And his point was, you had nothing to do with the fact that you were born a woman. You had nothing to do with the fact that you were born black. You know, you had nothing to do with that. That was your mom and me, you know, <laughs> when you think about that. And so, you know, it's, that, that, those were like things that were given, I mean, from that standpoint. And, you know, he wanted us. I have an older brother and had two sisters, and my, our younger sister died four years ago. But, you know, work on things that you have something to do with in many ways. And so don't pay attention to what other people are saying about those things that they had nothing to do with either in the process. So I think for me, it was 
a given, I guess. From the time I was in high school, I was on student council. And, you know, I was just actively involved. And I went to an all-girls um, academy, Loretto Academy in El Paso, Texas, because my father was, his last duty station was Fort Bliss Army Base. And, you know, I saw girls doing all kinds of things that perhaps they would not have been involved, student body president, the secretary, the this, the this, and all of that, you know, outside of uh, if, if you were in a co-ed high school. Uh, I also went to a Catholic women's college, Webster College in St. Louis, Missouri. I went 1,100 miles from El Paso, Texas, you know. Um, and again, the president of our college was uh, Sister Frances uh, Barbera, and she was the first woman and a nun that served on um, President Clinton's, uh, President Kennedy's uh, education board. And so I saw all of these women, they may be nuns, but then I saw, you know, in my setting, how women especially controlled all of these issues. And so I've never had the, the thought that, oh, women can't do that, because I saw them do that, you know, through high school and through college. So it's, it's just a matter of, what you want to do. Are you willing to work hard to do it? What is it that you believe in? So it's made it very easy, I think, for me. And um, our dad was a master sergeant in the Army. And, you know, that at the time was the highest rank you had in a non-commissioned officer. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, he ran our household like a master sergeant, you know. Goodness. And um, (laughs) my mom was a nurse. And uh, it was just... He was more political than my mother was, though they both were, you know, paid attention to elections. They always voted. They told us about voting, why we needed to vote, why people before us were killed because they couldn't, they didn't want them to learn to read or to write or to vote. And, you know, to me, I learned early that vote had power. And I think that always stayed in my mind, that if you have some say-so in what's going on, then you're part of, of this world that you live in. And that just always stuck in my mind. So when I went to college, it was like, yeah, I was, you know, I ended up being a voice major. I was a music major, but it was in St. Louis, Missouri. And in St. Louis, Missouri was a really active town and had lots of black people involved in what they were doing. and. And so I got to see it, you know, but also we were encouraged. If you don't question the status quo, then from a women's college, they haven't done their job yet. You should challenge the status quo and you should see what kind of changes you can make and what kind of changes would be effective. And you don't wait for everyone else to make those changes. You get in there and you help make those changes. And I believe that. And I believe that. Um, today, that that race is important to me because I know how people of color are treated. But does that make me any less than someone else? I have never believed that. You know, I'm not better than anyone else, but neither am I less than they are. And so it has always been I want to have some say-so in what happens. 
I want to look at those people that are most vulnerable, that don't have a voice or don't feel they can use their voice, that I can be that person. And at the same time, I had my own goals. I, you know, we knew from the time we were in school, we were going to go to college. I mean, that was a given in our house that this is what's going to happen. Um, and then after I did that, then later on I thought, yep, I want a master's. And then I finally got the point, yep, I want a PhD because that's the highest in the university system that you can really get. Uh, so if, if the door is not open to me, it's not because I haven't gotten the credentials. Mm -hmm. And if the door is not open, then we're going to keep pushing and pushing until that door is open. Senator Haley, the same question to you. Um, how do you feel about serving as a black legislator? I'm not sure the percentage, the racial makeup of the Kansas House and Senate, but there's essentially a handful, 10 uh, well, black there, members. There, there, are two, there are two in the Senate, two correct, of 40, correct. so what, 5%. Uh, in a state where the black population is, what, eight and a half, nine percent? Clearly underrepresented. Well, we try to even the scale. I mean, you know, we try to even it. I mean, you maybe know, we're accustomed to being, you know, the I mean, powerful you know. <laughs> intellects that make up for the gap. Anyway, you go, well, so what, talk about your service. So, uh, do you view it as a service as a black man? Uh, well, that's, that's a big chunk of your constituency. Um, I have the fourth state senate district, which is in Kansas City, Kansas, is the fourth uh, most diverse uh, state Senate district in the country. There's one mm. in Florida, uh, in Broward County. There's one in near San Diego. There's one in Brooklyn, New York. And then there's Kansas City, Kansas. Wow. So there's a large percentage, black, brown, white, and then a mixture of yellow and red, if you will, if we're going to look from color standpoint. Uh, for me, it's the social condition, though, that brought me to it. Um, um, and it's more... Um, those that don't have access to the system. What got me in this was you know, I was assistant DA, and uh, at the time that I was in the DA's office, I noticed that they were tearing down houses. We had a problem with housing the, the underhoused, but there was a demolition of historic older houses in the community where I lived. I live in the inner city. I live in the core inner city. And here we had people who couldn't pay their rent or who were marginal income, but the city was tearing down houses. It's, it's been a prevailing theme that exists to this day. And this is, so I did this. Here I am, uh, supposedly uh, respected assistant district attorney, standing in front of bulldozers coming out to tear down houses and raising the issue and getting press, you know, with my, my tie loosened, like Tiananmen Square or something in front of the tank, saying, the tank. don't tear down this house. The house is not the problem. Um, it's the societal conditions that allow inequities to exist. We should be fixing up with, at that time, the $4,000 it takes to demolish this house, put $4,000 in windows or doors, clean it up, and put somebody in who can pay it back. That just makes better sense. We're here as we're speaking now in this beautiful historic building. This could have been on the chopping block if it were in Kansas City, Kansas, if it sat boarded up for a while because of the mentality of our society, which doesn't look at the big picture to try to bring about sensible solutions that could ease the social and economic plight of all people. 
that's what got to me. Somebody said, you ought to run for office. I go, oh, yeah, you know, my dad was in office. I'm going to do that at some point in time, but I really don't want to do it right now. I need to pay off my student loans, and Kansas legislature doesn't pay anything, and I don't want to be on the city council. And again, that's when I started running, you know, first as a Republican and later as a Democrat. Um, but it's not just housing. It's not just access to those basics that continues to drive me. And that's your question is, it's not whether or not this overwhelming, this critically white Kansas legislature turns a, a deaf ear or a blind eye or a hardened heart to those conditions because of race. It's across the board. That's what I've learned. They couldn't care less about many of, it's almost an elitism that has nothing to do with race. Because again, the race of Kansas, I don't know what percent is black and brown, but it's certainly in the distinct minority. What they do, they being those with these hardened hearts in this legislature and the one that I started in and that Barbara started in, you know, almost three decades ago, it's kind of a, it's a class struggle. And that's what I've learned more than anything else because they don't mind disaffecting um, white Kansans as much as, as they do as long as they empower those that are in the position to be better represented and better heard. Let's think about some of the evolution of politics in Kansas, but it's probably a national thing too. I think there's a general perception that the state house is less civil you guys have a lot of perspective on this. What do you think? Harder to form relationships with Republicans than it used to be? Well, <clears throat> I, I believe the makeup of the legislature, and I can speak to the House, is very different. Um, when I was elected, moderate Republicans were a much larger number. Modern mm -hmm. Republicans in some states would have been very equivalent to a Democrat, you know. So you, you had more moderate um, people serving. And so, therefore, our legislation was more moderate. Um, if I could interrupt, there's times when people have thought in various chambers of the legislature in Kansas that there were really three parties. There was the Republican conservatives, the Democrats, mm -hmm. and then the Mod R's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, but when I came in, it was actually, no one ever talked about it being three yet because it was still two. Mm. It was Republican and Democrats, and, and moderates were in a larger number. Mm -hmm. Then later on, yes, then it split so that you did have three parties. You had the conservative, you had the moderates in many ways. And what we noticed, that moderate Republicans and, and conservatives were more at each other than they were at, you know, Democrats uh, in, as a result of that. So I think that changed. And the more conservative it became, the issues became more conservative in many ways. But it also followed sort of like a national pattern in a way. But I believe social media had more to do with this in many ways because now there were people in different states and everything else could now connect where before they couldn't connect. They were only part of the area where they were among their people, but now they could all get together because social media made that possible. And that is when I think the federal legislation became a bigger factor in many ways. Because up until then, it was 
pretty moderate, um, you would not have even heard transgender, hmm. you know. And we didn't talk a lot about LGBTQ because those letters were added later over the years. Mm-hmm. It was only sure. just gay, you know, or it's a lesbian or whatever. But then all of that changed. So it all kind of changed with social media. It changed with the House becoming uh more conservative, and then gaining the higher number, a lot of it had to do with a promise that Brown, you know, Governor Brownback said to the Senate members he would get rid of so many of the moderate Republicans there, and he would replace them, and he replaced a significant number. Yeah, a decade ago, he took out uh, took a hand, real leadership role in taking out a half a dozen moderate Republicans in the mm-hmm. Kansas Senate. Yeah. yeah. So when you look at that, then that changed uh, how the legislature began to change in many ways. So, you know, when I, I, I look at that, you can, you can see the changes. Now it's like you almost can look at part of our changes to a certain degree, might mirror some of the federal changes that we're dealing with, you know, today. But that has you, to you be- could consider the federal influence on Kansas politics hasn't necessarily been a positive. Senator Haley, mm-hmm. can you talk about the 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 notion that well, maybe uh, the members of the Senate go to their respective partisan corners more readily than they used to be used to. Well, and to add to that, absolutely. It's very polarized now. I mean, it's almost predictable who's going to uh, even vote how based on what the issue is and based on what the litmus test is for the party loyalty, as has been just been mentioned. It's um, there um, has been the characterization of those who are moderates as being rhinos or Republican in name only and therein unworthy to represent or to carry the label and all that rhetoric that is not only in, in Kansas, but nationally that has pulled or constrained a litmus test on certain issues. And as it relates to um, my constituency or diverse constituency, they have really made a target of the issues of inclusion, calling inclusion woke and making woke uh, a negative to to look at um, issues like uh, understanding how America has become uh, through many racial, sometimes charged strife, what America is and saying that that's critical race theory and that to teach that is anti-American or and to look at these issues and to have them defined in a political category has been a concern because we have some very conscientious I'd say all my time here most people want to do the right thing and then you get tagged with a label or you get tagged with being too sensitive or insensitive or too liberal or too progressive Um, And they don't want they being these same very good people who otherwise, if you were just sitting at home with them, sitting out on their porch um, in their corner of the world and talk with them, really want to. But they enjoy being elected. They appreciate it. And they don't want to get tagged as being um, outside of what their party has become, which is, you know, ultra conservative and defined by. Uh, national rhetoric in administrations as well. And that's really sad in the process because they, they know better and they, they can do better, but they enjoy being where they are. 
I'm thinking over the years you've been witness to political victories and disappointments, personal and and politically, you know, in terms of the party apparatus. But I was wondering if you could reach back and talk about a policy or a campaign or some other element of your work in the legislature that you find particularly compelling. When I think back, I think about Senator Longbine gave a speech a handful of years ago when Kansas was debating, I think, the increase in the financial penalty for not wearing a seatbelt. And he gave this poignant speech about his own son dying in a traffic accident. And those are the things that I carry with me years and years later. So I was wondering if you had moments like that, too. Senator um, Haley, yes. um, There's several of those. Um, Wrongful uh, um, incarceration really has struck with me, and I'm glad we see compensation now for those that are. Any of us could be locked up for a crime we didn't commit. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine? And that always struck me. I mean, a former assistant uh, DA, and and that's just so wrong. Eight percent that it's projected shouldn't even be there in for a crime. So I'm very glad to see that come through. Glad to see Kansas compensate. Another one that um, was was very proud of that uh, a sponsor that hasn't gone through. We're relitigating it now. The abolition of the death penalty, mm-hmm. the inequities that are there inherently. Um, that was something that I introduced and was solo sponsor for years. It, it's coming back around. I don't get quoted on it anymore, but still, um, mer- medical marijuana, 2009. It hasn't passed, but I did this solo sponsor along with uh, Rep. Gail Finney. Um, did it on the House side, and I did it on the Senate and. These are the issues that, again, where we look at a system that marginalizes in Kansas and other places, you're trying to catch folks with a little bit of uh, innocuous substance on them so that they get into the pipeline or the system and that that system is self-perpetuating our correction system, our law enforcement, our judicial system. Again, the, the again, it, it becomes a class system. It's not as much racial, though, um, when, as has been said, when white America gets a cold, black America gets pneumonia, you know, because mm-hmm. it disproportionately impacts um, black America and black Kansas. But these are the issues. And finally, um, at least in terms of one that comes to mind, the one that I really and, and, and one of my mentors, Alvin Sykes, who is deceased, that brought to me that I'm very proud of. And it actually made me emotional when it passed. It took eight years to get it was creating. Um, animal cruelty, extreme cruelty, Scruffy's Law, it was the animal cruelty um, that created a felony. Well, at first blush, and many of my constituents didn't understand it, why are you fighting for animals down there? Well, it's the mindset we wanted to get to. Those who, through dominionism and bullying, felt it was okay to torture or to injure or to even abjectly neglect something living and by doing, not be held accountable. And later showing that these same people that got away with animal cruelty and animal neglect, who did that intentionally, they grew up to be, well, domestic abusers. They grew up to be um, um, serial killers in some cases, as did the notorious BTK out of uh, Wichita, who started by strangling cats, but not being held accountable. So I'm very proud of the deeper social impact of creating a felony for extreme animal cruelty, um, which was my solo and big push for about eight years. And I remember Scruffy's Law. Yeah. <laughs> those are good points. Representative Ballard, could you look back and can you also capture some of those moments for us? Well, you know, early on when they decided about 
are mental health clinics, if you think, many groups. Mm -hmm. And just looking at those issues, it's like we're going to close these institutions. And in the process of closing it, the money will follow the person. And that is, I'm on Social Services Budget Committee, and I have been on this committee, you know, since 1997, you know. And so when I look at this, it didn't, what we found out is that we closed a lot of, you know, the institutions. But the money did not follow the person. Not only that, but there were some extreme cases, whether they were developmental disabilities or whatever, a lot of communities weren't equipped to handle all of those cases. So as a result of that, that created a real problem for communities. KNI, Kansas Neurological Institute, is one of my biggest ones that I have fought for, I continue to fight for today. It's in Topeka. KNI is in, in Topeka. Topeka. And Governor Sam Brownback proposed at one point to close it. Oh, it was a. It, These it, are the most extremely disabled Kansans. And that was huge. And that's when I, you know, I decided myself, you know, there's a time, to, you know, to always speak up. And then there's a time to really speak up and make sure people know what's really happening. Because with KNI, you have people that have been there almost since birth. They can be there 50, 60, or more years. And that's the only home they know. Their parents weren't able to take care of them. And if they became wards of the states, that would have been part of it as well. So that's a huge one. And, you know, it's like we won it. It took a while, but we, we won that round that we still have KNI here today. Um, there's a moratorium that's on it that says, basically, if those services are not available in communities and they can't reach them, then maybe you can apply to KNI. And, and occasionally they'll take one or two more. So that was huge, but still it exists and it still provides an extremely valuable service. You know, the other one would be a bill that I passed that I just really draw it, and it was setting up um, visitation, um, child exchange and visitation centers. And part of that was, if you are the non-custodial parent, you have a right to see your child. But if for some reason, you feel that your child might be endangered or could be abducted or whatever, you set up centers and then you work it out where within a half hour period of time, that's how the legislation was written, you know, you can drop your child off, you leave, there's someone there to do it, the non-consodial parent can come and pick up the child and have it for the visitation times that they want, then they have a scheduled time that they bring them back and everything else. And that was so helpful because, you know, I got a lot of help from that. The Senate helped me with that as well. Uh, the Attorney General, uh, Carla Stovall at the time, was helping me with that bill. And it made it possible for people to be with their non-custodial parent, but yet it alleviated the problem we were having. People were driving their children to the police department and exchanging their children in the lobby. Hmm. They would be on Highway 59, 
the highway patrol would be in between, the first car would be in front, another car in the back, and you were exchanging your children like that. It was very dangerous because if you were in McDonald's where you were exchanging children sometime, you don't know what's going to erupt because of the emotions that's involved. Right. So we still have child exchange and visitation centers, mm. and I am extremely proud of that one. And I, I had a lot of people sign on to that bill. And the last one that still bothers me today is gun control. And, or lack of, I should say. Why do we have concealed carry on a university campus? There's no reason a good for question. us to have child exchange, I mean, um, concealed carry. Mm-hmm. And so that's still a big issue. Uh, colleges, not just the University of Kansas, of which you know I, I, I work, but other colleges, people have decided not to because you have to say on your website and everything else that you, that this is allowed and everything else. And a lot of parents don't feel comfortable. They don't want their children to be in a room with someone that has one. Yes, you have to be 21 or over in order to do it. But I believe the law was written so that you essentially have to have airport quality security on on every building well, in order to block the, the guns. Well, you know, it was interesting one. And I, I have for every year, and I just had it drafted today that I'm introducing that bill again. And, you know, we tried for four years before it became law permanently in order to do that. And that's still an important issue. The only place we have on our campus is the athletic department, Allen Fieldhouse and everything else, because they were able to spend that kind of money because they could control metal the detectors. Yeah. And the exit. But we have too many exits on a college campus to be able to control that. And yet, to me, it's a safety issue. And the question I always get, and that's why whenever they do guns, they know I'm coming down on it. I don't care what <laughs> gun it is, it is. But they've always asked, and what has happened? No, we haven't had any problems. No, we didn't have a shooting. Yes, we found a gun in the bathroom or whatever. But to me, it's not the issue. Is you want me to say somebody was killed and everything else, and now we'll revisit it. My point is, do we need to have that on a college campus? Well, I can appreciate both of you for uh, being persistent, obviously, with your legislative service, but also just in terms of public policy and your advocacy for those things. I think we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank Representative Barbara Ballard, Lawrence Democrat, and Senator David Haley, also a Democrat, but from Kansas City, Kansas, for joining us today and reflecting on their own personal history. And I want to thank you for your service. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for asking us. Really.